so much of baseball is what's passed down. Um, and baseball evolves and, you know, your dad's baseball, your mom's baseball, isn't your baseball and your kid's baseball, isn't your baseball. And you tell, but you tell stories that I know so much about Bob Gibson and Kurt Flood and, um, and Lou Brock from my dad. And for me, it's like, what are the stories I would tell? And I guess, you know, with the strike, it's like, well, the world series didn't happen. There is no story, you know, this thing that could have been this fabled time in baseball just didn't happen. And for me, it's like, what happened, but it was all under false pretenses. Am I allowed to be like, that's baseball? I don't know. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by writer, podcast host. You probably know her work from Sports Illustrated. You definitely should know her work from the podcast Crush, which we're going to talk about. And she's a St. Louis native, Joan Neeson. Joan, thank you for joining me this week to talk about your podcast, Crush. Thanks for having me, Derek. I've been listening for a long time, so it's fun to be on the other side of things. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, this is overdue. But I'm glad that we get a chance to talk. We should have just talked baseball before. Um, <laughs> which is what we're going to talk, but we're going to talk about it through this lens of you revisiting the 1998 home run chase for the series of podcasts called Crushed by Religion of Sports and PRX. And in your first episode, you kind of introduce folks to why you wanted to pursue this, why it meant something to you personally as someone growing up in St. Louis. Can you take me through sort of the idea and the genesis, that's the right word, genesis <laughs> of the of the podcast and, and then how you went about pursuing it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting story, I think. It does it didn't come about the way that most things I've created came about in my career, in that I actually didn't come up with the seed for the idea. Um, I was working at Sports Illustrated for about six years, was laid off and was sort of looking for my next opportunity at the same time as Religion of Sports, this company I've been working for for the past year was looking to launch an audio department and started talking to them. And one of the guys there who was really in charge of sort of spearheading the hiring of the journalists to do the audio had an idea related to baseball in the steroid era. He had some connections to one of the congressmen who was instrumental in bringing about the steroid hearings in 2005. And he thought, there's something here. There's an idea here. And he asked me if I was interested in sort of taking that tiny little kernel of an idea and making it into maybe a podcast. And I said, you know, I love baseball. Um, it's my favorite sport. And I have a lot of emotional connection to the steroid era. So I would be happy to do that. But I, I really want to be able to put my own spin on it. And, you know, my spin on it is in 2005, when those hearings happened, I was 17 and not paying attention. But I paid a lot of attention to the baseball component of the steroid era as a kid in St. Louis. I was 10 in 98. So I sort of said, can I put my spin on this? You know, my story related to this is much more focused on what it was like to come to baseball as a fan during that time mm -hmm. and then feel a bit let down. And so that's sort of how, what I jumped off with and um, just began calling, emailing, reaching out to everybody I could find who might be interested in talking about the subject, which was, you know, not that many people. <laughs> yeah, you have a, you have a daily reminder of your fondness for the home run chase, correct? I do. That's that's in the first episode of the podcast. I chipped my tooth celebrating um, when McGuire hit 62. I was sitting on one of those like toy rocking horses that kids have um, in a friend's basement. 
and I, I jumped up and the rocking horse had like a pole coming up off of it, kind of like a carousel was what it was meant to look like. And being a rocking horse, it rebounded and whacked me in the mouth. So I have a teeny little chip in my front tooth that uh, I've never gotten fixed. For that reason, as a souvenir of sorts? Yeah, kind of, I mean, it's, it's really like, you you know me, Derek, you've never probably never noticed that I have a chip in my front tooth. It's, 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 I'm very vain. If, if it were a big thing, I would have gotten it fixed. But it's <laughs> so little and I'm kind of like, well, it's a, it's a fun story. And that moment meant a lot to me. What did you learn as you set out on reporting that maybe were some of the early surprises? Like some of the things that, you know, I know you, like you said, you called a lot of people, probably had a lot of phone calls not returned, probably had a few phone calls returned and then no comments. Uh, what, what do you, was there something along the way early on that, that surprised you as you set forth on this or maybe that you did not know? Yeah, you know, that you're correct in assuming there were a lot of unreturned phone calls and a lot of guys who got back to me and said, it's interesting you're doing that. I would love to listen, but I don't want to talk, um, which is sort of the, I think, general sort of legacy of the steroid era. I don't want to talk. But um, I think to me, when I set out, I was thinking a lot about the home run race. I was thinking a lot about Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, to an extent, Barry Bonds, also three years later, setting his record and these sort of superstar faces of the steroid era. And as I started reading and really just kind of thinking about what am I interested in here and what is the story here that hasn't been told, I realized that to me, the story that hasn't been told is kind of not about the superstars in some cases. It's about how widespread this was and how many guys you and I have never heard of got swept up in this, um, this sort of environment that was created by the league and created by superstars, but everybody from top to bottom was brought along with it. Yeah, one of the things I, I'll remember vividly was standing in an old Bush Stadium clubhouse and walking up to John Mabry to when he was playing in his playing days and asking him if he ever thought about the career he might have had, if not blocked at every turn or most turns or some turns by someone suspected of using performance enhancing drugs. Like if you, you know, it just... You know, he he had to learn different positions. He had to move from team to team. He was a journeyman who would try to latch on to playing time, get hot, you know, and and start for a while and then move again. And, you know, my thought was, here's a guy who, if not blocked at certain spots or blocked at the position that he's most comfortable playing by somebody suspected of performance enhancing drug, might have had a long career as an everyday player. You know, who knows what his earning potential would have been, his service time yeah. would have been, his extension, you know, contract extension. You know, was there an all, is there an all-star game with that swing, if not in this era? Um, it, you know, he he wasn't real. he didn't really elaborate on it, but he at least entertained the conversation. Um, so many players would not even go there, would not even, like, explore that because, you know, it, either they didn't want to give an answer that revealed what their choice had been, um, or they just didn't want to cast aspersions. And, and you do a great job of kind of capturing that over a couple episodes. One, you you dive deep into the decisions that players made. And then two, in the most recent episode, you talk about like kind of the nature of cheating and whether it's on a crossword puzzle or on a baseball field and how people rationalize it by saying it enforces the talents you have, not gives you talent you don't. Yes. I think that's all was all really interesting to me when we kind of, my producer and I reached sort of a crossroads when we were, we thought we were done reporting, I would say. And we realized, you know, in the middle of this podcast, we need to really step away from sports and get into this idea of cheating because we've had so many guys talk to us about, you know, 
what their careers could have been, but they also say, you know, I don't feel bad because I did little things too. And the whole ethos of a clubhouse is the whole ethos of being a professional athlete is doing anything you can to get better. And, you know, I just, I I don't want it. Guys would say to us, you know, I I don't want to cast aspersions on my teammates who made choices that I didn't. And we realized there's a lot of psychological stuff going on here with cheating. And so we took this step back and we talked to a, a professor at Harvard, who's sort of an expert on cheating. He studied kind of behavioral economics and, uh, really looked into why people cheat. And that was in episode four. And he offered some really compelling conclusions. And in that episode, also talked to a couple of guys who, you know, I guess if you're looking at the rule book as a stickler, cheated, but didn't take steroids, did little things that everyone was doing, ball doctoring, that kind of stuff. Guys, mm-hmm. Stuff that guys are still doing today that Trevor Bauer is talking about today. Um, talk to them about what they did and their views on it and steroids. A quick aside, that game where you got, you you talked briefly about the corked bat there at the White Sox game. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not get to go. I didn't have the uh, the luxury, as probably people know, of growing up in a baseball time zone. <laughs> um, so the first time that I really got to go to baseball games a lot was after going to college. And I chose a college that was 124 miles between each ballpark. So American League one weekend, National League the next. But I took a road trip up to Chicago to see a White Sox game with a friend. And that was the game we were at. Oh, my gosh. It was fascinating of all the games. And I was explaining to people in the crowd, like, what was going on. It was it was awesome. It, it was <laughs> it was great to see and then read all the follow up and then read about, um, you know, the teammate who crawled through the ventilator, right, or the roof or something yeah. like that to go steal the bat. Um, so quick aside there. Yeah, I mean, it was but it kind of being there and listening to your podcast reminded me how like um, how many things can happen on a ball field right in front of 40,000 people or 15,000 people or 20,000 people. And no one know what's going on at all. Right. Like, like the sunscreen on a forearm that allows for better grip um, when mixed just right with the resin or the, or the catcher who walks out to the mound. And all of a sudden you see the pitcher put his hand on his shoulder and it's like it's 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 right there in front of thousands mm-hmm. of people. Um, but what he's doing is getting some a little tack, a little stick so that he can throw that next pitch. And you're right. And and that's such a fascinating culture. I, I almost kind of agree. I don't I think it was Honeycutt in your interview that said it, that like that's part of what makes baseball compelling is that feel for the gray area the ch- and you made the point, the differences in the ballpark, the differences in the weather, all these things that baseball has to adjust to. I kind of find that part of the magic of the sport. I agree. And it's something I I really take for granted as someone who I watch a lot of baseball. I I talk about baseball a lot and I I watch other sports too, obviously, but I don't think that much about the fact that like an NBA court is the same size in every city that has an NBA team. Um, And that's not true for a baseball field. And there's so many little things that change from place to place that, yeah, I think it just makes baseball baseball. You also talked to a former Cardinals farmhand, Jeremy Cummings, who faced this choice that uh, that we kind of touched on there that was really present in this era of whether or not to stick with the talent he had or use performance enhancing drugs to catch up with his peers who were surpassing him. How did you find him and how did you find talking to him? Yeah. So at some at the beginning, my my sort of inquiries to players were largely, you know, I've got to check the boxes that I reached out to all the big name steroid linked guys. And I knew that 
those guys probably were not going to be jumping at the chance to talk to me. And after that, I realized maybe the next place to go is the minor leagues because the minor leagues had a steroid testing policy before the majors did. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I should go there. Maybe I should look for guys who are not famous, who, you know, might have less barriers to talking to me. So I emailed every emailed or called every guy who was suspended under the minor league testing program Mm -hmm. in the first, I think, two or three years it was implemented. Everyone I could track down. A lot of the guys were Latin and I don't think, you know, it didn't kind of left baseball after being suspended. And so I, I will say that like half of them, I just couldn't find because they, I don't think live in this country. Um, but of the guys who, you know, were born and raised in the U S and probably still lived within the country, I, I reached out to almost all of everyone I could find something for. And, uh, that was when I started getting calls back, emails back that were like, tell me a little bit more. And got a couple guys on the phone who ended up sort of balking once we were talking and decided they didn't want to talk. And Mm. so I knew I was making progress. I was like, I was getting responses. I was getting guys on the phone. And then Jeremy Cummings responded to an email. Um, I found his email, I believe, because he was coaching in West Virginia and had his email posted on some kind of youth league site and um, sent him an email. And he responded back. I I wish I, I should look for the email, but it was something to the effect of, oh, my gosh. How'd you find me? I've never talked about this before. Let's get on the phone. And we wow. got on the phone and he basically said that he, he hasn't talked about it in years. Um, his experience with steroids. Um, I guess I gave away that he was suspended. I wasn't going to do that. Well, it's he right. was suspended. Um, kind of hard to talk about him without it, but yeah. he said, you know, no one had ever asked him about it because, you know, after the initial, you know, his family's freaking out, his name's on the you know ticker on the bottom of ESPN is being suspended. No one asked him about it again. And he said, you know, I think I'd really like to talk about this. And we talked. We talked three times for probably two hours each um, just about his entire experience playing in the steroid era. And um, that episode is my favorite episode of the podcast. And I would urge people, you know, even if you're, if you're on the fence, maybe to listen to that. And yes, Jeremy Cummings used steroids, but his journey to that decision, I think, tells the story of the steroid era to me. Yeah, that's the arc in which he takes you on and arrives at the fork in the road. Um, at, you know you know how it ends. You know what path he takes. But his view of it is worth telling. I mean, like how he, how he both arrives at that fork and the pressures that were put on him and also the different places he goes um, to get there. I, I thought it was really compelling in that, in that, episode how you make very clear how the players were helped by performance enhancing drugs this was like you know the fog that was sent up in some ways was like yeah well but what is it really helping them do what is it you know what is that really going to do and you know mcguire talked i remember being there that the i went the day after his mlb network well he was on mlb network with Bob Costas. I was in the air flying to California to spend the next day with him. And it turned out then I spent the next three days with him. They just, wow. he, he said I could continue to stay. Um, and I met him at the batting cage while he was working with Brendan Ryan and Skip Schumacher. And, you know, this was the day after. So he had dropped, you know, every, all, all the weight that he had been carrying around and, you know, had the, admission on MLB network. And then this was the next day. 
Um, but you know, even in that interview, he talked about like, I still hit a lot of home runs. I hit a lot of home runs. This didn't help me hit home runs. This didn't give Mm -hmm. me 10 extra feet, but I think you do a really good job in that, in that podcast of making it human, but also showing how it did improve. I mean, how often did you hear that from guys that, that acknowledgement that it made them better? Yeah. I mean, the guys I talked to who used, they said it made them better. I think that's a really interesting thing about steroids, whether we're talking about the effects they have and how, you know, how they make someone better, or whether we're talking about sort of the medical side of steroids, which we're going to get to in the next couple episodes that are coming out. Mm. We, we can't, we don't, steroids are illegal. Anabolic steroids were made illegal in 1990. And therefore, these guys were, A, they're not getting them from doctors. They're not on, you know, prescribed programs. But also, we're not running medical studies on these things because they're illegal and guys aren't supposed to be using them. There are only very, very small studies of what steroids do to the human body. Um, and those studies are done in, in consenting adults, um, by the way. People who can make the decision to use them usually for their athletic, you know, benefit. Mm-hmm. And the studies are somewhat, you know, inconclusive in that they are really small sample sizes and they aren't, you know, they're not major league players who are, who are submitting to them first and foremost. It's usually like weightlifters, stuff like that. Um, so we rely a lot, whether we're talking about the medical side of things or these, you know, these benefits, which are also, I guess, the medical side of things on anecdotal evidence. And while sometimes I am leery to sort of put stock only in anecdotal evidence. And I think with some of the, a different conversation is some of the anecdotal evidence that I think is somewhat incorrect, but I think we can listen mm-hmm. to these guys about what they experienced and say, well, these men think that these steroids helped them pitch better, play better, whatever it is. And we can look at numbers and we can, the numbers bear that out. You know, Jeremy Cummings talks about, and Dan Nolte, the other player I talked to in that episode, they both talk about, you know, finite numbers on the radar gun that they are hitting that they would never have hit before they started taking steroids. And they talk about, you know, their bodies changing and just feeling stronger. And I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of a placebo effect in there. Like they both talk about like invincibility and just feel like they can do anything. And I think there's a psychological effect that has nothing to do with actually like the drug changing your brain chemistry and a lot to do with the drug making you feel confident in yourself as a baseball player who is probably struggling because you decided to take these. So it's very interesting. But yeah, I, you know we know that these drugs increase muscle mass and they make it easier for guys to work out and then recover faster and work out again. They, they were what made guys, you know, be able to like pump iron after games. Right. So yeah, and that's going to make you better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to make you better. I have a photo of the two of us talking to McGuire and I, and, and when McGuire and I are talking about that concept and, mm. you know, his point was that he used to stay healthy and eventually, you know, I go, but if you use to stay healthy, to stay on the field, you have to be on the field to hit home runs. Can you, can you at least acknowledge that you would have hit fewer home runs because you wouldn't have been on the field? And right. it was like his reckoning with that description. Um, and he, he acknowledged that, you know, and his point was that he was a power hitter, um, but he had to be on the field to hit it. So it didn't add to how far he hit the ball or how often when he was on the field, he would hit the ball. But his point all along was that it just got him back on the field. And then he acknowledged that, yep, you know, that did permit me to hit home runs because otherwise, but I would have been on the injured list or would have been not playing or any of those things, you know, and you're right. I, I think that's interesting how the performance enhancing drugs maybe relights this furnace of confidence that, you know, you need 
as an elite athlete, just in general. I mean, it's not like elite athletes are lacking for self-confidence. I mean, they're, they're the best they are at almost every level until they get to the very top level. So they, they've had infusion after infusion of confidence. Um, but once you realize that like your head's bumping up against a ceiling or, or, and this is what I wanted to ask you about where you see peers doing things, you almost need that furnace relit. You need some, some new coal for it. And it wouldn't be surprised if, you know, this had that psychological effect that it, that it pumped that in. Did, did you think that peer pressure played a huge role in this? Um, just the competitive nature of staying employed as a ball player or seeing other people pass them by with less talent? I do. And I think that's a really interesting concept to look at. Um, you know, we don't know what percentage of guys were using steroids at the, the height of the steroid era, say, you know, in 2001, 2002. We, we don't know. Um, we have, we've heard all kinds of numbers. You know, Jose Canseco in his book said that he thought 85% of guys were using. Ken Caminiti, who talked to Tom Verducci at Sports Illustrated in 2002 about his own use after he'd retired, I think yep. Ken said 50%. When they initially started testing um, and were, you know, guys knew they were going to be tested. So there was a, you know, there was incentive to not use, but they, their names weren't released. It was sort of an anonymous survey testing. It was five to 7% of guys. So I think the number lies somewhere in between all of those numbers probably. Mm -hmm. And even if it wasn't a majority, I think there is an element of peer pressure. I think that people use the word coercion sometimes when they talk about this, because this was such a thing that was still done in the shadows. So imagine, you know, you're the new guy on the team and you come up from AAA or whatever, you're trying to make it, you know, the stars aren't telling you they're using steroids. You're just kind of assuming because it's around and, you know, some guys are that I think almost the number got inflated in a lot of guys' heads um, mm. where it, it didn't matter. It was just, you knew it was going on. It was an open enough secret that people knew it was going on and knew these were available and that guys were doing them and not getting in trouble. And I could see how really quickly you would be like, oh my gosh, everyone must be using them. Even if really, maybe it was 30% of the team you're on, which is still a lot of baseball players using steroids. You, you hit on some of the, like the landmark stories there, you know, that uh, the, the, the coverage, you know, Verducci story in Sports Illustrated, you can dial back to Nightingale's story in the LA Times, where he talked to Tony Gwynn um, mm -hmm. and, and had reference to steroid use um, increasing in baseball. As you did the research, how did you find just the tone of coverage evolve from the, I mean, just the euphoria of 98? And you have a great episode about being the reporter asking the questions in 98 that no one wanted to answer. Um, and also the, the stress that that brought. Um, but also, it's just a great TikTok of how journalism works, too. That episode is really good. It should, it should, be, it should be utilized in journalism classes just for how <laughs> a story is brought together. Um, or I guess I should say how a story used to be brought together because now it would be tweeted out, I guess. I, I don't know. It'd be yeah. like fascinating if that story were – if that happened now. Um, but how did you see in, in reading – the evolution of the coverage from, I can imagine just like mostly celebrating and exciting and, you know, look the other way of the late nineties to maybe an overcorrection in Oh five mm -hmm. where, you know, juiced comes out, which was Conseco's book. And, you know, I mean, for a while there, it was like my job to ask Tony LaRussa, when did you know? How much did you know? And he, oh, just, gosh. he got really, I mean, it was like daily. 
Um, you know, in spring training, he was, it was a wonderful introduction to the baseball beat. Um, my first spring training as I just irritated the manager constantly, but that's, a, um, but that's the job, um, you know, to, to maybe, um, to what it is now, which I, I'm not quite sure. Is it yet? Has it found an equilibrium, um, more of an acceptance and awareness? How, how did you find that, that kind of the spectrum of coverage over time? Yeah, I mean, I think starts with Steve Wilstein in 1998, who found the model of Andro, um, which is a steroid precursor. It was legal at the time in Mark McGuire's locker. And um, Steve really diligently, as you said, his, his reporting on the story was airtight. He really diligently sort of went about researching what is in this bottle? Um, what does it do? What other leagues have banned it? Um, the answer was pretty much all of sports have banned it except for baseball. Um, then getting a coworker of his, um, who's actually a good friend of mine, Nancy, Nancy. Armour, getting Nancy yeah. to chase down Mark McGuire at Wrigley Field to confirm, no, this bottle wasn't just in my locker. I actually used it. So Steve ran a clinic on reporting and he was extremely careful. And he even wrote in his story something to the effect of, you know, I can't say, you know, we can't say that Mark McGuire wouldn't be chasing down Roger Maris without, without this, these pills. He was so careful to not, you know, suggest that the home run race was tainted because he, he couldn't prove that. And that's not what people were going to receive at that point. And people didn't even receive Steve's very, very measured, well-reported story well. They, they called him a snoop. They called him. They said he was, you know, looking at things he shouldn't have been looking at. Tony LaRusso went after him and said mm -hmm. he should be banned from the clubhouse. Um, so the coverage is not being received well. Um as time went by, you know, I talked to I talked to a lot of journalists for this. Um, some of them appear in the podcast, some just on background because I was not in clubhouses then. So I wanted to talk to people who were the experts. And, um, you know, a lot of people said Tom Verducci especially told of just having people come up to him in the early in 99, 2000, 2001 and say, guys are using it's everywhere. I hate this. It's frustrating, but you can't use my name. And. Mm. Finally, then he got Ken, Ken Caminiti to put a put a face and a name to steroid use and wrote a big story. And that story was it was much bigger than Ken. Um, it was about he, he used some reporting of guys who didn't want their names included. Sort of Ken Ken was the, the name and did some you know had some anonymous sources telling him about their steroid use and what the situation was like across the league. And that story made huge news in a way that. Steve Wilstein did, but there was no debate over what if what Tom Verducci was doing was right or wrong. Um, but he was on the Today Show. It was, you know, oh my mm. gosh, steroids are in baseball. But then what's really interesting is like that happened and it all kind of died down. And baseball didn't respond. Nothing really changed. Um, stuff was changing behind the scenes. The testing was sort of gaining some traction with the players union. Um but yeah, and so then the coverage, I think, sort of, I, I agree with what you said, it, it sort of reached a fever pitch, I think, um, with Falco and the congressional hearings and, you know, these players are role models and they are ruining people's lives and, you know, a righteous moral indignation that um, I don't have for steroids. Um, to me, the indignation comes over the fact that players are basically defrauding fans and, you know, mm -hmm. not putting a pure product on the field and making a lot of money and that baseball, this billion dollar industry is allowing it. It's not, you know, these men are morally bankrupt and should be, you know, and are menaces to society. And that's, that's how the coverage evolved for a while. Now, though, I mean, I'm curious what you think. 
we don't hear about steroids that much because guys, I think, you know, the testing program is pretty comprehensive and there's a lot of incentive not to use them, but you just don't read a ton about it. And when you do, when, when you do, it seems relatively measured. It's almost like, well, you know, Robinson Cano is out for the year. He used steroids and that's how it is. And that's how it should be, which I guess is, you know, the right take. Yeah. I mean, I don't see it lingering. I think the, the, the big time of year where it comes up is every winter with the hall of fame ballot mm-hmm. and it's overwhelming. Um, and you do have somewhat this, I mean, you can't please everybody. I mean, I got, you know, th- this last few years have been the first time that I voted for bonds and, um, you know, Clemens, you know, on the ballot, obviously those names get a lot of attention and, you know, for a while there, and, and I've tried to be consistent, you know, as, as, you know, the hall gives us tools and then gives us a limit. That's how I see it. They, they say, here's the approach that we would like you to take. And here are the tools at your disposal, including the sportsmanship clause and how they played the game and the stats. And, you know, we've already gone through and yes, this person has 10 years and is eligible to be on the ballot and here are your tools. And now we give you a ballot that only has 10 spots. And my approach has been, okay, well, if I have 13 people that I think are deserving of the hall, I need to use the tools to whittle it down to 10 because they're mm-hmm. not asking me, are these 13 people worthy of the hall of fame? They're asking me to give them a list of the 10 most worthy this year. Right. And so I have to use the scalpel of that sportsmanship clause to do something. And that's sort of, I mean, people can go, well, you're rationalizing it or you're coming up with reasons not to vote for steroid users or steroid um, suspected users or people who have where there's a preponderance and evidence that they did use all of that. And that's fine. But then this past few years, I had spots open. I didn't have more than 10. I had less than mm-hmm. 10 and I had bonds and I had Clemens and I think Gary Sheffield is a hall of famer. And obviously he's admitted use <clears throat> um, and had some thoughts about being, you know, told what he was told about performance enhancing drugs and then yeah. said he stopped. You know, so I, I I recognize a seven-time MVP and a seven-time Cy Young winner belong in baseball history and belong in the Hall of Fame. And they would make it easier for me if they put their transgressions on the plaque. I understand that that's difficult. It's not like Barry Bond's going to pose for a photo that says, you know, he was tied to Balco or any of the other number of things that they could put on that plaque. But I have to use the tools to then sharpen down my list to less than 10 And so the past two years I have voted for them and I'll get emails saying, finally, you know, you're, you're not taking the moral high road because who gave you the right as a baseball writer, you're not even real. Um, And then I'll get emails saying, how do you call yourself a father? How are you going to look your son in the eye and tell him that you voted for a cheater? What kind of dad are you? I mean, so you just get like these extreme and and it's every year. Yeah. And so, I think that's when it kind of peaks is we get back to that, like you said, fever pitch of 05. And, you know, there's there's some element of, you know, I I see some elements of, say, like hyper Star Wars fandom in it where they're like, you've taken the, you know, hey, George Lucas, you ruined the magic of, you know, Han Solo shooting first by changing this. And I'm going to forever hold it against you because you've robbed me of that magic. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think there's that element was 
with with steroids is people go you you know barry bonds you took a record that hank aaron had how dare you you broke a record that mark mcguire had how dare you you mark mcguire you broke a record that my father and my mother celebrated for their lives because roger maris had it yeah how dare you and so i don't think there's like this calculus about steroids so much as there's the calculus about or maybe anger about the story that was taken absolutely and that's what i find comes up every year whereas like the tiktok of the latest suspension is kind of brushed aside is like okay well he got like you said he got caught he's gonna pay the fine manny ramirez right how, mm-hmm. how much i mean there's discussion about him he's on the hall of fame ballot but if somebody doesn't vote for him people go Oh, well, yeah, he was suspended. Well, okay, right. that makes sense. There's not this like, you know, this, there's not like this caustic reaction that is just like this polarizing caustic reaction that comes with the other guys. You're either in it or you're not. And they even if you like try to say, hey, look, I'm measured down the middle. I still get the, the, the claims that I'm on the extremes. Yeah, the Hall of Fame thing is very interesting to me because, you know, baseball never disciplined these guys or did anything and they kind of leave it and i'm stealing this take which i think is a great take from howard bryant um the espn yeah. reporter where he, he doesn't vote anymore because he's like well baseball never punished these guys and they're leaving it to the writers to 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 you know adjudicate this and you know like you said guys get put on the ballot it's not like everyone who ever played baseball appears on a hall of fame ballot baseball right. put these guys on the ballot and then is leaving it up to the writers to make the decision meanwhile you know these executive committees put Bud Selig, who oversaw all of this, into the Hall of Fame. Um, and so to me, that's sort of an implicit, well, baseball thinks that you can be really, you can have your hands dirty with steroids and still be in the Hall of Fame. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I appreciate all all the other writers who say that. Um, and maybe this will get me in trouble. But, how, but what Howard argues is the reason why I'm okay still voting. Mm-hmm. And that's that's me. And I like I've, I've talked about this other times is the notion that if you look around and say, well, who's going to make this decision? It's your turn. Like, stop looking for other people to make a decision and find a way to do it. Um, That's just something that I learned early on as a kid is if you start looking around for other people to make a decision, then you don't have any right to complain when they do and you disagree with it unless you stand up and make it. And so maybe it's okay to have that responsibility as a writer. Because baseball's yeah. looking around going, not us, not us. No, we're not going to do it. So who is? Who is going to be the steward of history? You know, right. I'm not Somebody's saying that I individually <laughs> am going to do that. But as a group, as a group of baseball writers, I think it's okay to say, all right, well, you are divesting yourself of any interest in holding your sport and your history accountable for this. All right, cool. Thanks. We'll take the responsibility. Yeah. I'm okay yeah. with that. And Yeah, I think that's very a very interesting take. And I... Yeah, it's interesting to me that like you can kind of I feel like you and Howard and a lot of the people I've talked to who do or don't vote all have very similar thoughts about this and go a different direction on whether they vote or not. Almost. Yeah, it's like everyone's it's little, acknowledging these this it's a, baseball doesn't baseball hasn't adjudicated this. And then where do you go from there? It's a little like the players coming into a fork in the road. Everybody has that moment, right, where it's like, OK, we're, we're going to confront this steroid thing and you can take one of two paths. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think. I've done a lot of thinking about this over the course of recording the podcast because the steroid era is very marked with inaction and people not wanting to make decisions. And at some right. point, somebody's got to do something. And um, 
baseball didn't want to for a long time. And in some cases, like you said, it, it still doesn't want to with these guys. Were you surprised looking back that there wasn't like a canary in the coal mine earlier? Or maybe Tony Gwynn was? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe that Tony Gwynn story is is that um, I am and I'm not. The reason I'm not is because of I think it was like the perfect set of circumstances to have everyone look the other way in that mm. we're coming out of the strike and baseball suffered big time. I mean, the strike was kind of the first time it seems like that sentiment turned against the players and ownership that everyone just kind of hated everyone involved with baseball because there was no World Series. And um, there was a lot of bitterness there. And I think you know, for a while, everybody involved with baseball, everybody who loved it, whether they were a steroid guy or a vehement anti-doping guy, you know, really wanted baseball to come back. And I think that's a big part of this is that, you know, 98 brought baseball back and um, everybody wanted that. And I understand why. Yeah, well, you live. So what was it? What do you recall about that? summer? Is that the summer that you're fondness for baseball ignited was that the pilot light or was that the bonfire or both? <laughs> you know probably the bonfire um you know I'm, I'm from st louis so i grew up with baseball everywhere and what high school uh, did you go to oh i went to viz all girls um, am i doing that right yeah you did it right all um, right cool i'm learning the 2004 viz halloween dance i was dressed as a crayon and didn't enter and stood in the lobby and watched um one of the games of the world series when the cardinals got swept i didn't wow. attend the dance just to watch just to watch a terrible baseball game. So that's my baseball fan experience. Um, that was yeah, the Red I, Sox? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was a very sad little 16-year-old. Um, the color uh, crayon. Uh, I was Periwinkle. It was a great oh, costume. But, uh, but yeah, I, as for 98, I, I'd gone to games a lot. With, you know, my dad had been taken. I went to, I went to Ozzie Smith's last game. Um, thought that was really cool. I always liked Ozzy because the backflips, but I didn't have like a nuanced view of baseball before 98. I was 10. So I think it was like the exact right age to be like, Oh, I like math and I like the numbers of this and I like this. Um, so I just watched games constantly all summer. I didn't, I don't, I went to like one game that year. I wasn't going to games a lot. Um, but watched everything, listened on the radio. I mean, I watched all of baseball that year. I was like watching WGN and TBS and like, mm -hmm any baseball I could get, I was watching. And um, yeah, it just, it, that's certainly like the most rabid of a baseball consumer I've been in my life. But after that, I just kind of kept it up. It was sort of the, the event that made me love the sport. And even when there wasn't a home run race, I think the home run race was this big, loud event, but I somehow, I think I managed to like pick up on the nuance and all the little things about baseball that I now love and could, you know, love when there wasn't a home run race. Were, did you see, peers getting enthralled as well maybe maybe folks or even parents peer, uh siblings who had been turned off from baseball a few years earlier getting back into it then was that part of it was it part of the communal feel of it you know i don't really know um i asked my dad about that and he was very like eh, i just like baseball um and he's he's a very measured person so mm -hmm. there's not a lot of emotion around all of this he just really likes baseball so I don't think in my family there was a lot of um, bitterness from the strike, but from everyone I've talked to reporting this, I talked to people who said, you know, I, I hated baseball and this brought me back. Um, I talked to people who said, you know, my dad hasn't watched baseball since the strike and I wasn't. And then I turned it back on because of the home run race. Mm. Um, but I guess I was just too young to really, really grasp that. Um, I remember like my dad telling me there was no world series, but 
that's all I remember. The title of your podcast, I think, is is genius. And I wanted to ask you about it because it's crushed, obviously, the baseball. But does that describe then the feeling you had as you come to understand what you were watching a few years later? Yeah, trying to do trying to do both those things. Um, you you know the Derek writers. We don't we don't write our headlines usually. Um, it's not we do that's now. Not, you do. That's true. We're not taught that in journalism school how to write our headlines if we want to be a writer. It's you know that's tends to be you know you file your story and so I am terrible at headlines and I at SI I would be asked you know come up help help us come up with something you know for the magazine or whatever and what do you give me thoughts and I was like no I can't do this I'm terrible at this. I actually came up with Crush. It's the one title of anything I've ever come up with in my life. And I will have zero more. It will never happen again. Um, but yeah, I wanted to do a little double double entendre there with the baseball and then also, you know, me. And I think also a generation of fans, more than a generation. I think just a lot of fans felt that way. Um, I think I am less crushed than a lot of people by all of this. But uh, But I think that is the general sort of sentiment of just like, all these years later, it's 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 less anger that I've found and a lot more just kind of disappointment and just, oh, what happened to those memories? That's interesting. Yeah, I am not. I I, I still count as a young fan. I think in '98. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just out of college. Um, you know, I uh, I am not to use your word crushed by that. I am crushed by the strike. Mm-hmm. I I even as I cover baseball, uh, I I think a lot about that strike and not having a world series and um just that that was a year for me where i got to be around baseball like i mentioned like you know major league baseball did not exist in colorado or in the entire time zone until 93 Mm -hmm. and you know i went off to college at mizzou and just like you did um a mizzou grad and now i had you know, I could, I was a few hours away from games every weekend during the summer and I got to go and like, you know, I, I went to Cardinal games and I went to Royals games and I would, I would leave with pockets full of all-star ballots back before they would do it online <laughs> yeah. where you had to poke out the dots. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, somewhere, somewhere I have a photo of a stack. I, I mean, I filled a box of all-star ballots <laughs> Um, because Paul O'Neill was not one of the outfielders on the ballot. So you oh. had to write him in. And remember, oh he gosh. was he was hitting better than 400 into June, I believe. I mean, it was crazy. It was really good. It was, it was, yeah, and it was Yankees and all this. Um, you know, but he wasn't on the ballot because he drew the short straw there early in spring when they chose the three outfielders that would go on the ballot. And so I wrote in Paul O'Neill on all of these ballots and then drove those ballots to Bush Stadium on a day oh there wasn't a game to deliver those those ballots. And I knocked on the door at Bush Stadium and say, hey, the deadline for the ballots is later this week. Can I give these to you? Um, so that was baseball for me at that time. <laughs> and then there was no World Series. There was no Expos, Yankees, World Series. There yeah. was no, you know, and for, for me, um, being a kid who grew up, through the seventies and eighties um, after Reggie Jackson and through the Mattingly time when the Yankees were everywhere, but never good enough to be for that to be the year that Mattingly might've seen the postseason. Mm-hmm. There aren't, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. There aren't many days where I go, where I go, don't remind myself of that strike happening. I'm trying to relate, I guess, to it. Do you think that's how it is for the home run derby for some people that, that now it's like this, this moment that they, they, 
they can't not think about when they watch baseball? I think so. You know, I think my hunch all along has been this is all about what age you are when you experience things because you fall in love with baseball when you're young and it's a sport that's like a lifetime sport for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. every the people who I've heard from the most, like people I don't know reaching out to me, um, are people who are like between the ages of 30 and 40 right now, give or take. Um, like I'm on the young end of it. It's people who were like teenagers when this was going on, I feel like. Mm. And it sounds like, you know, for you, the strike was you were, you were young enough to sort of, there, there's a wonder still to it that, that gets lost. And um, yeah. my other theory, which dovetails with sort of your, your strike year um, feelings are that is that so much of baseball is what's passed down um, and baseball evolves and, you know, your dad's baseball, your mom's baseball, isn't your baseball and your kid's baseball, isn't your baseball. And you tell, but you tell stories Like I know so much about Bob Gibson and Kurt Flood and, um, and Lou Brock from my dad. And for me, it's like, well, what are the stories I would tell? I don't have kids. Um, but if, if I do someday, like, what are the stories I would tell? And I guess, you know, with the strike, it's like, well, it, the World Series didn't happen. There is no story. You know, this this thing that could have been this fabled time in baseball just didn't happen. And for me, it's like, what happened? But it was all under false pretenses. Um, am I allowed to be like, that's baseball? I don't know. That's that's such a great point. Joe Posnanski, I think it's Joe Posnanski, who says, he said that the the team or athlete you you uh, you are a fan of at 10 never leaves you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, so in doing this podcast, have you then kind of reconciled the, the excitement you had at 10 with the knowledge you have now? Yeah. I think that's been the goal. And I think it's, it's been a journey. It's funny. My producer and I will just like have, especially when we were doing a lot of the reporting, which the reporting for this was done like last summer and fall, mostly podcasts take a long time to make mm-hmm. um, something I learned recently. This and one so, will be up in a few hours. I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> yeah, I know. We should follow your lead here. No, um, no, no. Honestly, there's a lot of me being like, can't we get this out? And like, we have to produce this. Um, it's a very writer, I think, brain of mine. But um, <laughs> as we reported, my producer and I had a lot of check-ins where we would just like get on Zoom with a beer and like talk about where my brain was on all this so that I could kind of sort through my journey. And I think the podcast itself like is kind of a journey where my opinion changes and evolves as I go. Um, but yeah, I think the goal is to reconcile a lot of that. And I, I think I did. I think I, I landed on something. I actually just finished writing the final episode last night. So I'm, I'm fresh into this reckoning because I was trying to put it all on paper. And um, yeah, I think that obviously I care enough about the home run race to spend a year and a half of my life on it. So I can't be that bitter, can I? That That's what I wanted to ask you is, is I mean, you know, this isn't the anniversary of 98. This isn't like some, you know, you know, this isn't like some nostalgic trip either. I mean, like the, the, the episode that you did um, talking about like kind of the nature of cheating. I mean, it, it really strikes at the a modern dilemma in the game, you know, as you know, you know, baseballs are being confiscated for goop. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lawsuit out in Anaheim for somebody who said they were, you know, one of the um, one of the clubbies. Right. Said he was scapegoated. Um, as Major League Baseball tries to crack down on the foreign substances. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, 
it's baseball's ongoing war with a substance of some type, whether it's a performance enhancing substance or a foreign substance or, you know, the actual substance of the game as pace of play comes up. So mm-hmm. baseball has just this like ongoing tug of war with various substances, um, you know, substance abuse. You go back 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it, 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 it's a revisiting of this, of the home run derby. Um, and the 98 and that amazing rebirth of baseball through power that we now look at differently. But you also are touching on modern things, which is baseball reckoning or dealing with the fact that there's an element of finding the gray area in every game, every game someone's trying to do. it. Yes. It's yeah, it's part of baseball. And I, I wanted the podcast to be like, like you say, it's not an anniversary. There's no, there's no reason to do this now unless there are lessons that apply today. And there are, I think that like, I think everything is cyclical and it won't be steroids, but it'll be something else. And, you know, how do we deal with these institutions when they, when they let us down and how do we sort of, how do we parse the hero worship that's inherent in these sports? Um, and how do we sort of make that work when they let us down? So I think a lot of it is you apply it to whatever you want and it's, it's relevant. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's the last thing I want to ask you is, do you think then the home run race that we all celebrated so much and particularly the hitters who were involved in it should be celebrated? I think the race should be celebrated. I'm not sure that I would want to celebrate the individuals. Um, I think that's where I come down on it. I talk about the Hall of Fame where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, Sosa's still on the ballot, but has really no realistic shot of getting in. And McGuire's off the ballot at this point. They're not in the Hall of Fame, but there's an exhibit there that I'm sure you've seen that, yep. you know, has McGuire's jersey and bat and a scorecard from the game that he, he hit 62. And it has an asterisk about performance enhancing drugs, but it, it commemorates this moment in baseball history. And to me, that's that gets it right. It's, you know, we, we can remember the moment and like our feelings and that it for me and for a lot of people that it brought us to the game and, you know, for me, it like gave me this connection that I think I'll, you know, is a really fun part of my relationship with my family and my dad and these things that are bigger than baseball without being like Mark McGuire is the greatest or Mark McGuire is the seminal figure in my life. Um, mm. And I think I can also say that because I grew up a Cardinals fan and McGuire retired and I very quickly moved on to Albert Pujols. So I've like <laughs> got a guy who I can be like, that was my guy. Um, <laughs> it might be a little bit easier for me to say it that way. Yeah. I, uh, I'm okay with flawed heroes. Um, I'm okay that, that, you know, that Paul Bunyan isn't perfect. I'm okay that Paul Mm -hmm. Bunyan isn't perfect. I'm okay that Paul Bunyan has flaws. I'm okay that legends have flaws. I'm okay that, that heroes have to be human every so often. And I, someone who watched the 98 home run derby with great interest and amazement at what McGuire was doing, um, but was also in journalism and and read the stories and wondered, um, and then later had to cover Mark McGuire as a hitting coach. Um, my appreciation for what he did to return to baseball and face those questions and acknowledge a flaw at every new city, I appreciate that and think what he did in the first summer as hitting coach was as impressive as the 70 home. Yeah. I think that's a really fair point. I think it's much easier to 
like these people as people and you know him as a person. And to me, I agree. It's fine to have flawed heroes. And I think everyone is flawed. He'd really a letdown if we didn't. The hard thing that I kind of can't get over is the lying, but I don't totally blame the players for that either. I blame Major mm. League Baseball. But to me, it's, it's not about the drugs. That, that's not really what pushes me over the edge. It's the fact that they like just looked at us and lied for a really long time and expected us to believe in something that was frankly unbelievable. So that's, that's, that's my struggle. Point. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's where I come down, but I don't think Mark McGuire is a bad guy. He seems like a great guy from everything I've heard. And it's, it's a great. Hitting I coach. also, yeah. I also think that it's like the standards we hold professional athletes to are ridiculous. Um, because you're a professional athlete, it does not inherently mean you're a role model. And, um, I think that you have to realize that you're going to be, but I also think that it's, we, we, it's unfair the way that we expect them to be, you know, larger than life. Yeah. It's also okay to be a role model that apologizes. Yeah. Like that is a role model. Yeah, totally. Right. I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. Well, it's a remarkable series crushed by religion of sports and PRX. It's uh Joan, it's available everywhere you get podcasts, right? Just, I mean, everywhere. If you have yeah. it gets podcasts, it gets podcasts, right? Yeah, that's how I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> and how many episodes is it since you wrote the last one here recently? It is seven. So the final one will come out in mid-May. They come out on Thursdays. We've got another one um, on the 29th tomorrow after we record this. Um, and then that's episode five. So then six, then seven, then, then we're out. Um, I'd encourage people to start at episode one. It is sort of... It, pr it progresses. So it's nicely done in order. We have people we've noticed from downloads that some people started like on three and it's like, go back and try one. You might want it. <laughs> so that's yeah. my, that's my PSA. Yeah. Th well, three is the Jeremy Cummings one for yeah. folks who, so talking to the far farmhand of the Cardinals, a name that many people recognize two is an excellent one. Just, um, just really compelling, but also strikes at the coverage of it. Um, and is great for media literacy. Um, one is, is I, when I listened to it, I was struck by how personal it was for you. Um, so really strong stuff. And I, I, uh, I just found the inside talk about like the nature of cheating and the looking up words for a crossword puzzle. Fascinating <laughs> in, in episode four. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you briefly your thoughts. Are you, are, are do you remain a Cardinal fan? I don't, I, I probably should know that. I mean, I think fan's a tough word. Um, as a journalist, I like yeah. you just see everything too closely, as you know, um, I enjoy watching the Cardinals. I, I would say I'm I was talking about this recently, um, watching Phillies Cardinals the other night, uh, watching Adam Wainwright. And I remain a fan of Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina because they are the two Cardinals who were Cardinals when I was in high school. Mm. Um, and I viewed them through a different light. So I enjoy watching the Cardinals and staying current, being able to talk about them and um, consuming all of your work, Derek and Ben Fredrickson, Ben Hockman, you know, I, I read a lot of you guys, um, but I read it out of like a love of baseball and a love of the Cardinals as an organization. But um, once, once Yachty and Adam Wainwright retire, it's going to be a different story. <laughs> That's interesting. What, what yeah. do you make um, of the team so far this year? Oh, I don't know if I have any good conclusions. I probably haven't watched quite enough, but um I like that Adam Wainwright can still pitch. Um, they seem, I mean, it seems they seem pretty inconsistent so far, but I don't know. I, I'm not like down on them. I think that I think they've, they've got a shot at winning the division. I have a better way to ask the question. As someone who's from St. Louis, who then has gone through the Molina Wainwright years 
um, at, from high school to professional career to being an established and well-recognized writer. How important was it for this city to have an Arenado trade? Yeah. As that brand teetered a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely a very good point. I think that that trade, um, you know, I feel like the Goldschmidt trade was a little bit of a, okay, we're, we're the, the team is, Mm-hmm. They're trying to do this, but the Arenado trade to me was like, all right, they are still willing to take that swing. Pardon the, the baseball metaphor, but um, yeah, I think that I'm a little stuck in like 2011 in my brain sometimes, um, and it's like this is not 2011. <laughs> and talking to you know fellow sports writers who you know cover baseball, I, I do that a lot, and you know I think the perception of the Cardinals now is not what it was um, during the Larusa years, and I think a lot of if you're in St. Louis and you're following the team and they're making the playoffs, it's, it's easy to kind of live in your bubble. But I think that trade was a, it was a big deal for sort of the Cardinals stomping their foot and saying, we're still, we're still here. Because somewhere there's a 10 year old who many years from now is going to have a podcast and, (laughs) and needs to fall back. And I mean, that's the thing, right? Like that's the, that's the summary of this is 98 was the moment that, you know, like you said, captured you as a baseball fan somewhere in St. Louis, there is going to be someone who may dress up as a crayon for Halloween, but be more (laughs) interested in going to a Cardinals, you know, game or watching a Cardinals game because of something that happens this year. Yeah. And Baseball, while you kind of, you know, I mean, Adam Wainwright's career is a great example of it. Like the appreciation for Adam Wainwright's career has only come over time. Right. But the celebration of Adam Wainwright's curveball was a moment in time. And the 10-year-old who saw that is a fan forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like... There's the 10-year-old in 2011, and, you know, obviously that's a moment that probably did what the home run race did for me, but got to keep giving people those moments, and they're not always as magical as, you know, down to your last strike and the hometown hero or whatever, but baseball gives those moments, and it's unpredictable and surprising, and yeah, I think as Cardinals, as people who grew up Cardinals fans, we're very lucky to have had a lot of those moments. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate this conversation so much. Congratulations on the podcast. Um, now that you are done writing it, I can't wait to see what you start writing today, right? You're on to the next project. No one gets any time off. You're off to something amazing right away, right? After this podcast? Not actually sure what I'm doing after this podcast. Have a few irons in the fire. Um, one idea I'm really excited about, but isn't quite in that reality yet. So good. I'm going to take a couple weeks and breathe. Um, probably have another like week and a half of really intense work on this, just getting the last episode produced. But uh, I'm going to take a, take a week off maybe, and then dive back in. <laughs> You've earned it. Well, congratulations, Joan. It's been, it's, it's been great to listen to. I, I mean, I've read you for a long time. I've known of you and then known you for, for many years um, through our mutual friends and our mutual connection to Mizzou. And I did not know until this podcast that I was covering the team when you were in high school. So that's a nice revelation. <laughs> you were very young when you were covering the team and I was just yeah, in the right. <laughs> yeah, I was super young. Was yeah. Super yeah, that explains it. <laughs> um, the best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. Get organized with Closets by Design of St. Louis. Update your closet, garage, office, pantry, and more. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-B-Y-D-E-S-I-G-N. Best podcast in, av- in baseball is available wherever you get your podcast, along with Crush, which you can get on iTunes like BPIB. I urge you to, uh, if you haven't bailed from this podcast already to listen to Crush, now's a good time to do it. 
Joan, thank you very much for, for doing this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope that uh, we can do this again and we can maybe talk about like current baseball. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for having me. For the best podcast in baseball and stltoday.com, I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Talk to you soon. Thank you.